Blog Talk Radio. Glamour, fearless, diabetes late night. Well, you know you make me wanna kick my heels up and down. Are you ready? Because I'm ready to rock out tonight for November's Diabetes Late Night Podcast with you and the Isley Brothers. We have got a really big show planned for you tonight in celebration of National Diabetes Awareness Month. So thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedick, and I want to send a big thank you out to our friends at Diabetes Daily for sharing our free monthly podcast with their Facebook community. Tonight, we're spotlighting the music of the Isley Brothers because of Marvin Isley, who co-wrote many of the band's hits, including Harvest for the World and Fight the Power, was also a spokesperson for the American Diabetes Association, helping to raise awareness for the importance of early detection. Unfortunately, Marvin, who played bass guitar and percussion for the band, was forced to retire from the stage in 1997 after the amputation of both his legs. He died of diabetes health-related complications at the age of 56 in 2010. His widow, Sheila Isley, told Essence Magazine that she feels it it was her husband's denial that led to his kidney failure, stroke, and amputation. She said that you experience so many wounds that don't heal with diabetes that just aren't physical. They're also mental and emotional wounds that no drugstore in the world can heal. Marvin and Sheila Isley's story is inspiring us tonight to focus on the process of acceptance with my special guest, Dr. Beverly S. Adler. Additionally, we'll be talking about the amazing role dogs are playing in helping people to manage their diabetes today with guest best-selling author Mark D'Agostino and professional animal trainer Debbie Kay, who specializes in scent detection work with dogs. Also joining the conversation will be Terry Seidman and Mama Rosemary. But before we get things started, take a minute to donate to Divabetic at divabetic.org. Your tax-deductible contributions are greatly appreciated. It's time for more music from the new Isley Brothers 23-disc box set collection chronicling their musical transformation from a 1950s doo-wop gospel vocal group into an R&B rock and roll soul powerhouse party band, courtesy of Sony Music. This next song showcases the group's roots in funk music. Let's take a listen. Welcome back to Diabetes Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedick, and tonight I want to fight the power with you and say hello to all the divas in Philadelphia who joined us for Diva Bedick's Victory Over Diabetes annual event this past Sunday. Hey, tonight we're presenting the last segment of our five-part series on the emotional side of living with diabetes. On this podcast, we'll be focusing on the process of acceptance related to diabetes. Did you happen to catch that I referred to acceptance as a process? Well, honestly, I don't think learning to accept living with diabetes for most people as as simple as flipping on or off a switch. I think they'd probably agree that it's more likely to be, it's better to compare it to a dimmer switch that you adjust throughout your life as you educate 
yourself about your health, ask for support, and seek guidance from qualified health professionals like my first guest who's coming up, who I consider to be so respectable. Please welcome my good friend, Dr. Beverly S. Adler. She's a certified diabetes educator, a psychologist, and the author of two books who happens to make living with type 1 diabetes for 40 years look fabulous. Hello, Dr. Bev. (laughs) Hello, Max. Thank you for having me. And uh, I would like to wish you and all your listeners a happy National Diabetes Awareness Month. Well, thank you. I'm I'm feeling better because you're here and we're together. This is great. And uh, thank you for coming out on Sunday and being the keynote speaker at Divabetics Victory Over Diabetes. What did you think of our flashy, fabulous event? I thought it was wonderful, and I really would like to um, give a special acknowledgement to you and to Neva White, who did a wonderful job also as uh, as host. Yeah, um, I'm so thrilled to work with Eva White, who's part of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital, as well as the American Diabetes Association on that event. Uh, We're able to put on those free programs all year long um, with their help, and it was wonderful to have you there to kind of talk about uh, this topic that doesn't get a lot of coverage. And you talked a little bit about just how... um, how unique it is to be talking about the emotional side of diabetes. In your speech that day, you mentioned how few people are actually uh, talking about this subject in the healthcare prof- in the health world. Uh, unfortunately, yes. Unfortunately, uh, I don't think uh, the the doctors necessarily have the time to devote to dealing with this emotional adjustment of getting a diagnosis. And uh, I don't really think the doctors have necessarily the training to deal with the emotional issues. They're very clinical. There's a lot of information that uh, a patient has to learn about their self-care management. Diabetes is unique in that respect that, uh, for the most part, we have to manage our uh, diabetes most often, you know, the doctor can guide it, but most often we ourselves have to take the the uh, initiative. It's not like necessarily following doctor's orders, you know, take, uh, take this prescription for the next 10 days and let me know how you're doing. It's, it's, a, it's very complicated. I, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir because your audience is, I'm sure, well aware of all the uh, the details, um, but uh, initially, I think that's the doctors, most of them, their focus. Um, if they don't do it themselves, they have diabetes educators who are very focused on, let's get the details of the regimen down, because there's a lot to deal with, and uh, I, I think they just really don't have the time or necessarily the training to deal with the emotional issues. And I wish they did, and I wish they would be more aware, and um, I wish that they would, you know, find a mental health care professional who they could um, work together in a team. They work together with, you know, other other aspects of medical care, the ophthalmologist, the podiatrist, the, you know, internal medicine. I wish they could also include on their team, you know, a mental health provider. And even saying that, it's hard to find mental health providers who specialize in the treatment of the emotional issues of diabetes. Um, and yet, like I know that saying, what it's I so do... Important. Because, you know, when I was researching uh, this show specifically around the Isley Brothers and Marvin Isley's story about the denial and just, you know, how detrimental it was to his overall health, 
you could see how critical it is to have that um, emotional, to have some kind of help navigating the emotions that you might be dealing with either with the initial diagnosis or maybe with the diagnosis of a health-related complication. Like I'm sure the amputation was also incredibly uh, emotional struggle for him to get over. I'm curious, though, because I know on Sunday you spoke a little bit about how cognitive behavior therapy is used to help people with diabetes um, struggling with the process of acceptance. Can you explain a little bit about what that is? Sure. That's the that's the focus of the, the type of therapy that I do, cognitive behavioral therapy, and uh, it's a very successful therapy even if you're not dealing with the topic of diabetes. It's uh, especially helpful if people are dealing with depression, if people are dealing with anxiety, and all of those issues come up as well when you are dealing with uh, uh, diabetes. And cognitive behavioral therapy is um, the way to um, envision it is as the ABCs. And the A of cognitive behavioral therapy is what they call the antecedent. It's the trigger. It's the event that is not changeable. So, for example, getting the diagnosis of diabetes can be the trigger for every other emotional response thereafter, but antecedents don't uh, change. And the thing about um, your feelings, anybody's feelings, is they are they are the result of your thinking, and that's what the B is in the ABCs. It's your beliefs. If you have negative thinking, you're going to result in negative feelings. If you can think a little bit more positively, you will have a better positive feeling. And the feelings are the consequence. That's the ABC. So the antecedent, not changeable. People have to get to the idea to understand it is what it is. The beliefs, you try to have as best a a positive belief, and I'm not talking about Pollyanna, oh, this is wonderful, I have diabetes, not like that. It's a matter of accepting what is, and once you can do that, you will not necessarily have to endure the depression or the anxiety or the anger that um, can go along with the diagnosis. You can be much more accepting that I wish things were different, but this is what it is. These are the cards I've been dealt, and I will manage. I may not manage perfectly, but I will manage. Well, can I ask you, like, how would you qualify? I know the holidays are coming up on us rather rapidly, at least for me. I feel like it was summer, now it's November. But I wonder, like, how does that work uh, going through the ABCs? You know, because a lot of people who had the – What's the first one, the antecedent? Antecedent. That's what happened. They are diagnosed with diabetes, and now it's the holidays, and they think the belief is if it was negative, I would assume the belief would be like, now that I have diabetes, I can't really, I can never enjoy Thanksgiving ever again. That's a good good example of very negative thinking, yes. Which could be a consequence of that means I'm not going to go out, I'm not going to go to my family's house, I'm going to do nothing that day at all. Or, right? I mean, or how would you reverse it to the positive now? Okay, so a negative belief would be my Thanksgiving is ruined, it'll never be uh, the joyous day that it it always was with all the feasting and family. And so then the consequence is you say, you know, I, I'm very unhappy, depressed, I'm very uh, disappointed, I'm very, it's always a negative thought as the, as the consequence. And how can you change that? You can say, yes, I have diabetes. Yes, I have to keep a watchful eye on which foods I choose. But it doesn't mean you cannot enjoy Thanksgiving and the feast. And really, if you could focus your Thanksgiving on the family and not on the feast already, that would put your mindset 
in a different way. And it's not that you can't have all the goodies. You can have some of the goodies, and you can't eat gobs and gobs of it, but you can have a sizable, you know, a, a smart, sensible size of portion, and you can still enjoy, you know, all the feast. But the focus would be on family, and if you recognize that you still can enjoy the food, you know, within a reason, um, then you should be able to say, this is this is great. Thanksgiving is still the same feast and family, and I can still enjoy it all. So, di- uh, so acceptance doesn't really mean resignation, does it? It means more understanding it and coming to terms with it and kind of qualifying it to work in your life. I would say qualifying it is is a very good way of saying it. So I'm going to say acceptance, you can get to the point where you can say, um, you know, this is what I have. If you don't accept it, it doesn't matter. You still have it. You understand what I'm saying? Whether you accept it or not, you still have diabetes. So of the two choices, you're more rational idea would be to accept it and then you live within your means but it's you know it's but a um, lot of people like a lot of people who came to the philadelphia show and and i'm going to talk in general terms for a minute a lot of people with type 2 diabetes there's a lot of shame and blame associated with this diagnosis especially today where we're learning more about pre-diabetes and you know everyone's saying oh that's your opportunity to um stay healthy and then they show up and they find out now they are living with type 2 diabetes and so they have a lot of shame and blame themselves for not being able to change it when they could have had when they had the opportunity and they just have a lot of shame about oh you know developing it and 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 that becomes a huge hurdle i would think in this idea of the process of acceptance so here's my answer to you it has to do with um again it's it's the cognitive behavioral therapy but i always tell my patients when you look to the past coulda woulda shoulda okay so that's that is where you hear the blaming i i could have done differently i should have done differently i would have done differently okay and all those shoulda coulda wouldas lead you to feeling depressed Okay, it's because it's a done deal. It's water under the bridge. You cannot undo it. It leads to people feeling depressed. When people worry about the future, what if? Okay, what if I lose my legs like the, you know, the the Isley brother? Or what if I lose my sight? And what if, what if, what if? Okay, and all of those what ifs, because we cannot control the future, lead people to feeling anxious. And so the answer to the way I answer it is we stay in the here and now. I'm not going to worry about the past. I can't undo it. I'm not going to worry about the future. I don't know what to predict of the future. I stay in the here and now with the what is. And does that hold true also for the people surrounding the person living with diabetes? Or, you know, specifically, you know, you just referenced Marvin Isley, and I spoke earlier about his wife, Sheila Isley, who was at his side through the stroke, the amputation, and kidney failure. I mean, a lot of those, uh, I would assume Sheila must have had a hard time with the process of acceptance, too, of her husband's health. And is that would you use that kind of same behavior, the cognitive behavioral therapy on her as well? Yes, but I would also I I would so, okay, so here's what happens with a family person, okay? They feel responsible that they should have done more. You know, maybe they should have uh screened the food or taken away things or done differently themselves. And there's a lot of guilt that goes along with uh, a family member. And there's a lot of anger that goes along with a family member. I told him he shouldn't be eating all this. I told him he shouldn't be drinking all that. And um, so, again, what I try to do is 
going back to that antecedent, okay? So for a person diagnosed with diabetes, the antecedent, which we cannot change, is the diagnosis. For a friend or family member, the antecedent is this person with diabetes. We cannot change them. We can only change ourselves. So as a friend or family member, you can make sure that you provide the healthy foods. You can make sure that you provide, um, you know, company to go for a walk. You can, you can be there in a positive way to share in a healthy way. But you cannot change another person, and that's the thing about the antecedent. You can't. It's you. Can, you can't change the weather. You can't change other people. You can't change your diagnosis. Those are all things that are not within our power to do. And so, Sheila Isley may have been, um, you know, very depressed as she stood by her husband, but she has to realize. He is making his choices. It's not choices she would have made, I'll assume, and um, but he he can choose. He can choose poorly, but it's his choice to choose. It's not her choice to decide what he should be eating and drinking, and that's where the diabetes police come in because no, they that, think that's it's great. I mean, that that really hits home for me. And coming up, I'm going to be talking to best-selling author Mark D'Agostino, who 10 years ago changed my life around the same situation while I was Luther Vandross's caregiver. Dr. Bev, we've run out of time on this one, but you're going to come back on the show a little bit later after we talk to Mark and um, animal expert uh, Debbie Kay about how dogs are helping change the way people with diabetes manage their diabetes. Um, but before we do that, let's hear a Quiet Storm song, a top ten hit entitled Choosy Lover by the Isley Brothers, courtesy of Sony Music. back to Diaries Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedick, and it's time to meet my very special guest, the New York Times bestselling co-author and one of the most respected celebrity journalists who happened to profile me in People Magazine 10 years ago. Wow, he changed my life. It's a thrill to have him joining us on the show. His new book is out. It's entitled Ellie and Coach, Diabetes, a Fight for My Daughter's Life and the Dog Who Changed Everything. Please welcome Mark D'Agostino. Hi, Mark. Hey, how are you, Max? Good to talk to you. Wow, Dr. Bev just hit me right in the heart. You know, she's uh, talking yeah. about Sheila Isley. I'm sure you heard that. It was a lot. It was a lot of my story too, uh, with working with Luther after I found him, ha- and he had the stroke due to mismanaging his type two diabetes. I definitely went through a lot of what she was talking about—the guilt and shame associated with not being able to do enough for him prior to the stroke to prevent it—and then having oh, yeah. to deal with the reality of how quickly his life and everyone's life around him changed. And then, like she said, having to believe in the here and now and just kind of accept where we were and what was going to, what the new life and the new normal would be for us going forward. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that's such, that is such, uh, talking about the struggle that is is really the subject of of this book, Alien Coach. It, it's, you know, I'm the, the, the co-author, uh, sort of ghostwriter on, on this project, and that which was written by Stephanie Shaheen, um, who is the mom, in and kind of the one of the main subjects of this book, she is mother to you know an eight-year-old girl who is diagnosed with type one, and um, went through all of those emotions: the sort of guilt, the the feeling like she couldn't do enough, the feeling that she just wanted to do everything she possibly could to keep her daughter safe, and then. 
realizes, you know, as she goes along, that even if you do everything right with type 1 diabetes, there can just be genetic things going on and, and changes in the body that, that means she can't keep her daughter safe at all times. I mean, this is a really scary disease for people. And, and you know, here we are in, in Diabetes Awareness Month and, and sort of a year after Ellie at eight years old was diagnosed, um, it was Thanksgiving weekend exactly one year later, one year to the day after her diagnosis, um, that she actually suffered a, uh, a seizure um, uh, for the first time. And, and the panic of a parent going through that and Stephanie's panic of feeling, you know, that, that was it something she had done wrong? You know, was she not testing enough? Was she not on top of this situation enough? And as a caregiver, that is such a difficult thing to come to grips with. And it really does take time. It takes a long time. And they didn't have a dog in the family up until that point, as I understand it. Coach was is a yellow Labrador retriever, and so how did they? What made her decide, Stephanie, to even decide to do that? Yeah, well, it was a long journey. I mean, they really went through everything. And and Stephanie is actually the daughter of um, Senator Jean Shaheen uh, from here in New Hampshire, former governor of the state of New Hampshire, now a U.S. senator. And I mean, this family went to to the ends of the earth to try to help Ellie manage her diabetes. I mean, they really did everything they possibly could. They had access, you know, to the best doctors and scientists and, and all of this. Ellie herself is a just incredibly proactive kid. She went into uh, medical trials, volunteered for medical trials, um, which anyone could volunteer for, um, but not many children do. Um, Did she just have an to, incredible case of type 1 diabetes where her management just was so um, delicate in how to manage that that she would have that? Because it, I know there are a lot of people, we're going to have Terry Seidman on the show in a little while too who's living with type 1 diabetes. I don't know if yeah. she ever experienced that, but it seems, you know, I, my brother has never had has type 1 diabetes and he's never had a seizure. Yeah, it was, it was, I think, you know, it is, it's different for every person. Um, and there's also, you know, especially in young children, there's, there's sometimes these fluctuations that happen at night. And one of Ellie's biggest problems, um, biggest challenges, I should say, was that she would often experience uh, extreme low blood sugars while she slept and she wouldn't wake up. So her mother had to stay up basically every night testing her in the middle of the night. And and it was actually in the morning after she had tested normal at maybe you know one in the morning the last time her mother uh, tested her last time Stephanie tested her it, she woke up early the next morning and fell into the seizure she had this extreme low and so and this this was you know sort of a pattern and they, trying to find answers to this they went and, you know had early versions of the the continuous glucose monitor and and tried everything under the sun and they heard about diabetes alert dogs and and that this was sort of a new field and and Stephanie went into this extremely skeptical, you know, just thinking, well, this is just, it's great. Maybe this, having a dog makes people feel better, you know, or just gives them a little comfort. But there's no way a dog can do what medical science hasn't been able to do. Um, and so they, they kind of reluctantly went into this, but they're just willing to try anything. They went ahead with it. And so it was five years after her diagnosis that this dog comes into their life. And again, Stephanie was extremely skeptical. And can I, could I read a small passage from the book maybe just to kind of say Absolutely. how she started to come around? So this was, um, um, yeah, I'll start with this. Um, this is, so this is written in Stephanie's voice. And again, she's the mom to Ellie, um, who's the little girl with diabetes. And the, uh, the dog's name is Coach. I was startled by a wet feeling on my cheek. I looked at the clock on the nightstand. It was just after 4 a.m. It was Coach's fourth night in our home, and his intrusion in my bedroom surprised me. Four o'clock is a tough hour for me. It's right in the middle of the only REM sleep I get after going to bed so late. I was so sound asleep that Coach's first attempt wasn't really enough to wake me. I dozed off again. Then two big paws down on the edge of the bed, and that cold, wet nose would not relent. What's up, coach? I asked in my groggy voice, half expecting him to answer. He just stared at me, eye to eye with his chin on my pillow. 
I couldn't imagine anything was wrong with Ellie. She'd tested in range all day. She'd had her bedtime snack, and she'd tested within range just a couple of hours earlier. But up the stairs I trudged. I fumbled for her test kit on the bedside table. I pulled Ellie's hand out ever so gently from under the covers and stuck one of her fingers with the lancet. The popping sound of that spring-loaded pricking device always seemed louder in the wee hours of the morning. It still surprised me that it didn't wake her up. When the meter displayed a result, I rubbed my eyes to make sure I was reading it correctly. Ellie's blood sugar had dropped into the 60s. I rewarded Coach right away. Good boy, Coach. Good boy. And I thought, did that really just happen? I felt dazed as I walked to the kitchen to grab Elle some juice and yogurt smoothie from the fridge. I put the straw in her mouth and tickled her cheek, and she drank. Coach remained agitated, circling around and pacing a bit while she slurped in a few swallows. I kept staring at him. It was shocking to me. This dog knew something about my daughter that I couldn't know. He came down a flight of stairs to my bedroom to wake me up and then stayed there and made sure I was awake, all to make sure that Ellie was safe. A few minutes later, Coach calmed down. I watched him plop on the floor next to my daughter's bed and heard him exhale, almost like a sigh. I waited a few more minutes while he just lay there giving me that look again, like, what are you still doing here? I retested Ellie's blood sugar, and sure enough, she was back in range. Coach knew it before I did. I left her bedroom in awe. This was no coincidence. This wasn't some fluke. That dog woke me up to tell me that my daughter was in danger, and he was right. Wow. It, having this dog in the family just changed everything. It changed Ellie's relationship to how frequently she tested because she wanted to test not just to make sure she was in range, but to make sure she was keeping her dog happy. That's part of the relationship that happens with these service dogs. And it's just an extraordinary change in the family. It really changed the entire dynamic and gave everyone more comfort and just a feeling that that there's another layer of protection here, another insurance policy that's going to make sure, you know, Ellie doesn't go so far out of range that she winds up in a seizure again. And how did you hear about this story? How did you hear about these two women in coach? You know, it's it's great because, I've you know, with all the books I've done, they've come from different places, the celebrity world, from, you know, the sports world, the all over the place, and they come from all around the country. And this one was right here in my own backyard. Um Stephanie, uh, it's funny, the Shaheen family is um, had been close to my sort of grandparents' generation. and um, But I didn't know Stephanie Shaheen. I didn't know sort of the, the, the family members that were around my age or, or any of that. And, and Stephanie actually heard about, she read a story in the local paper about one of the books I had written, and she gave me a call. And the two of us got together and sat down, and she told me she had this story. And, and I wasn't sure at first, you know, does anyone want to read about diabetes? Do we want a book about diabetes? And and then I I started to look at it a little more broadly, and I and I understood that this, this was about something much more. This book is really about finding hope when you don't think there's any hope to be found. And this dog, the, this adorable yellow lab that becomes the hero of the story, is actually a perfect way in that allows people to talk about a subject that they might not want to talk about otherwise. And that was the magic of the book. That's how it all came together. And, and that's what caught the attention of a, you know, a major publisher, Hachette Books in, in New York City. And we put this thing out there and it's getting lots of wonderful reviews and attention. And, and people are reading about this. And, and it, the biggest thing that I get over and over and over again is I had no idea how tough type 1 diabetes could be, or I had no idea that it was a lifelong thing. I had no idea that you couldn't fix it just by fixing your diet. It's just, it's amazing how many people out there still don't have the education about what diabetes really means. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know we're running out of time, but I have to say, because I've never been able to, I I never saw you after People (laughs) Magazine, and it really did change my life, Mark. Thank you so much. You profiled me 10 years ago. I I read the article today preparing for this interview. I don't know. You know, I had no idea what that ever was going to be. And I remember uh, when it came out, I remember that I was asked to do the photo shoot. You told me you you have to do the photo shoot. They want to do a photo shoot with me. And I ran down like in jeans and a T-shirt because I didn't know what was going on. And then 
when I got the magazine and saw it and saw this huge photo of myself and then read the article. I mean, I was just so blown away. And then, you know, the response on that was incredible. We, you know, like most people, we weren't prepared for it at Divabetic at the time because <laughs> it was so early in the formation so new, of yeah. Divabetic. But it certainly played a pivotal role in how I was able to, how I'm able to still be here te- 10 years later, uh, continuing with diabetes education and empowerment. And I, I'm just. Um, I'm I'm so thrilled to introduce you to our audience, and hopefully you'll come back because you have been such a main part of the story of Divabetic, and I, I thank you for that. Well, thank you for doing everything you've done. I mean, right? Who knew, right? Ten years later, um, our worlds would collide again in such a positive way. I mean, this is just yeah, fantastic, incredible. and I love the work you're doing, and and I'm so glad that it continued, and and that I could play, you know, some small role in helping you get it all off the ground. I was so happy to be able to do it. Well, that that was just um, what a coincidence, and and that you did this book. So we'll have we have to have you come back. We'll have. Um, Stephanie on next time, and we'll talk more about it. And thank you again for being a part of the show. Uh, Coming up, I'm going to be speaking to a dog owner living with type 1 diabetes about this topic. But first, we're going to hear another song by the Isley Brothers that was originally dedicated to their mother. Let's take a listen to At Your Best, You Are Love. But at your best, you are love. You're a positive Welcome back to Diabetes Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedick, and helping me tonight talk a little bit more about raising awareness for type 1 diabetes is my good friend, Terry Seidman from Pittsburgh. Hi, Terry. Hey, Max. How are you? I'm great. I'm sure you just heard that interview with Mark, and he was talking about, uh, right at the end, he was talking a little bit about how this book is really raising awareness for what it's like to live with type 1. How long have you been living with type 1 diabetes? 46 years. And and what did you think about what he was saying? Do you think that uh, the, the general population is still a little bit confused or um, uh, not clear on what it, what what the two types are or even what it is, what it requires to manage diabetes? Oh, I, I still think people are very confused by it. And it's always amazing to me that when every so often you meet somebody who has a friend who has type 1 diabetes or they were in high school and had a friend who had type 1 diabetes. And, you know, it's very sporadic, not very usual, but they get it because they had friends when they were 15 or 16 years old or in college or something like that that they they understand what the difference is. But for the most part, I don't really think Joe Public gets it. And you also have a family history of, of specifically type 1 diabetes. Yes. My father was diagnosed at the age of uh, 13, in 1937, and insulin had only been released uh, 10 years before that in 1922. And my dad lived to be 73 years old, so it was pretty remarkable. And my sister was diagnosed with type 1 when she was 8 years old, and we are 13 months apart. So definitely genetic in, in my family, though, as we're seeing more and more, you know, type 1 diabetes is we're not really sure what the trigger points are for people developing type 1 diabetes in addition to the genetic factor. So still more, a lot more research needed to figure out what's going on with type 1 diabetes for sure. And you, um, you heard about the, you don't have, you, ha- you had a dog. It wasn't a, ther- a diabetes therapy dog. And later on, I'm going to be talking to animal expert Debbie Kay, who pioneered, uh, is a pioneer for the last 40 years in scent detection with dogs specifically. But you have type 1 diabetes, you had a dog, and you did experience this kind of phenomenon, correct? Uh, yeah. Uh, my dog is now 15 years old, but when she was much younger, and I would say, you know, um, from when she, probably from about when she was about five years old, um, and for about I don't know about eight years, um, every once in a while she would start walking around with me uh, on the floor by my bed, and I'm a very light sleeper, and I would get up, 
and I would put her outside, and as I was putting her outside, I realized that I wasn't feeling right. And when I tested myself in the middle of the night, lo and behold, I would be very low. I could be 43, 53, you know, very low. And if it didn't happen all the time, and I, don't, and I wasn't bottoming out every night, but for some, she had some type of instinct knowing when I was going low and continued to walk around to make sure that I would wake up to put her out. So uh, she wasn't trained for it. This was just something that was innate in her. All right. Well, that's interesting enough. That's our cliffhanger. Why do these dogs do this? We're going to find out in a minute, but first, Terry Simon, get excited because I am. We're going to play another song by the Isley Brothers that won a Grammy for Best R&B Vocal Performance. Here's It's Your Thing, courtesy of Sony Music. You're listening to Diabetes Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedick, and it's time to get to the bottom of this. How can a dog tell if I'm having a low blood sugar when even my mother can't? Well, my next guest is an animal trainer who's pioneered in the specially, special, who is a pioneer in scent detection work with dogs for over 40 years. Debbie Kay conducts seminars and workshops nationally on teaching super sniffer programs for de- detector dog training. Through this work, she has helped to train hundreds of medical alert dogs and their trainers. Please welcome Debbie Kay. Hello, Debbie. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm going to I'm going to keep Terry Seidman on the line too because uh, it was kind of interesting to her her perspective. Now I wanted you to listen in on all of this tonight. You heard me talking to Mark, uh, the co-author of Ellie and Coach, and also just heard Terry Seidman. The big question I think we all have is how 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 is this possible? How can a dog tell if someone's having a low blood sugar? Well, the dogs have uh, an incredible sense of smell, so much more so than than humans or any other creatures that we're associated with. Uh, you know, almost a third of their brain is is devoted to the sense of smell. So they have this tremendous capacity for it. And they're also very keen observers. And those two qualities, uh, when you put them together and you add in a, a nice mix of training, or in the case of your other guest uh, dog where they, they just picked it up on their own, uh, the dog's uh, are able to sense the chemical changes going on in the body. Whether you realize it or not, every time something major happens in your system, you're exuding uh, the reaction of that uh, major shift in your in your body chemistry through your skin and through your breath. And and both uh, both of those areas are areas that the dogs are constantly uh, smelling. And when we teach these dogs uh, as service dogs to actually monitor and sniff the people uh, and to give a specific alert at a particular uh, point uh, for a diabetic, it would be at a certain level of blood glucose, um, they, they just uh, do their job, uh, you know, quite naturally and quite easily. So are the dogs trained, Debbie, you know, when they, okay, so understand how, how they now are able to detect it. But then how do they how do you train them to alert people because like in the one instance uh they would be alerting Ellie but then they actually ran to her mother as coach went to the mother as well so is that part of the training Yes um you know when whenever uh, a dog is placed with a, a child uh, the dog is also taught that if something happens to that child, or, or even in the case of an adult, they're taught that uh, if something happens to that person and they can't respond, then they will go to the next person that they find. Uh, in the case of someone living by themselves, we teach the dogs to uh, go and sound an alarm. So this would be um, you know, some kind of a device set up to uh, signal a service, let's say, that would uh, alert the paramedics or alert family members or other people that are on a call list. And how? what is the training like? And 
um, I want to know for the dogs and then also for people like me who might need a dog. Well, the training's pretty intensive. Um, you know, the, the dogs go through, uh, if you're talking about a puppy, and right now I'm standing here in my whelping room with a litter of three-week-old puppies that are destined to be diabetes-alert dogs. And I don't know if you all can hear them. Uh, I think we can. We have new recruits. Right. These are all the new recruits. But these guys will start their training in about three more weeks. And they'll be introduced to the uh, to the scent, and uh, we'll start that scent imprinting process very early on. They have about 18 months of education, where they're learning their obedience and how to live with people, and then how to monitor and check people for the scent. And uh, during that whole time period, uh, if let's say uh, you became my client, uh, then I would start working with you. Uh, as that dog gets further along in the training, and you and the dog and me would work together so that I would make sure your handling skills are up to date, that you would know what to do to maintain the training on the dog, because there is maintenance training. Just because they're fully trained when I would turn the dog over to a client doesn't mean that the training stops. There has to be some maintenance training to keep the uh, performance of the dog up to speed. And how expensive is it? Because I know there's some risk involved in this industry of therapy dogs. It's not exactly that well regulated, as I understand from my research. Well, that's that's true. It isn't, and that's something that we're working very diligently to change. Um, but that's that's a work in progress. Um, it right now, uh, because there isn't a lot of regulation. Uh, you know, the the industry is open to a lot of fraud, like any other industry that's not regulated. Um, but um, you have to be uh, aware that there's a lot of time involved here. So anytime you're training a professional, uh, you just multiply an hourly rate by, by uh, the number of hours that go into training, and you come up with an astronomical figure. Um, so, you know, most... Ethical trainers, though, are not going to charge uh, probably nearly as much as, as we put into the dogs. And uh, the average price now in the United States is running about $20,000. To get a, a therapy dog. dog? Well, they're not called therapy dogs. These are fully trained diabetes alert dogs that know how to alert to blood glucose changes and have been fully trained to do public access work. And... Um, is there a resource that you should go to to find out who's a reputable breeder in that training? Well, there's, you know, that that again is something that we're working on establishing, um, you know, good protocols uh, and uh, setting up an organization that could monitor and and uh, and work um, to provide the public with sound uh, sound science and good research. Uh, and, and good resources, but right now, no, not not necessarily. Um, you know, the best I could tell people is to educate yourself, do the best research you possibly can do. You know, get out there, learn as much as you possibly can. Uh, you know, and and uh, ask questions. Uh, make sure that the person has uh, good references. Um, that you know, and check those references out. Just don't take their word for the references. Check them out. Uh, check and make sure that they don't have any complaints lodged against them, any lawsuits lodged against them. Um, you know, and and uh, all the normal red flags that should come up. Uh, you know, like uh, grandiose promises. I mean, you you want to see everything in writing. You want to get a contract. Uh, you know, ask several people who have maybe gotten dogs from that person. Uh, what their experiences have been, uh, you know, ask to see, you know, the real deal. Uh, you want to kind of test drive something, you know, you want to see what they've what they've produced and, and uh, make sure that, that they're able to produce what they said that they could produce. And um, what, in the, what about in the case of Terry Simon specifically? She mentioned, like, her dog might have a natural inclination. If Terry wanted to um, have her dog become a diabetes alert dog, is that possible? How is that something? If you're already in, you're a pet owner already and think your dog, you would like to work with your dog for obvious reasons. Are people able to do that? And is, is that where your book yeah. would come into handy? The super the super sniffer. Yeah, 
Well, uh, you know, actually, even right now for uh, the month of November, uh, I'm offering, uh, you know, a lot of lot of good uh, specials, if you will, uh, to encourage more people to uh, sign up for uh, my new online training course. Uh, but the online training course is, is what, uh, what I've done to give back to the community to try and, and bring that cost back down so that people like her, uh, if they want to train their own dogs, here's a step-by-step program that you could go through and you could train your own dog, and then you don't have to worry about being maybe taken by, by fraud by some, by some trainer who's just out there uh, pretending to uh, deliver the goods but isn't really delivering the goods. And and you also conduct workshops. Do you conduct workshops for pet owners, or are they only for people who are training diabetes alert dogs? Well, right now I'm doing an awful lot of training for uh, for organizations and schools that are setting up programs, but I do try to fit in as many workshops as I can for the average uh, citizen who wants to train their own dog. And we found that uh, coming to the workshop, we do some hands-on. I assess their dogs. I help them get started. I answer questions. I point out what they need to work on, what their weaknesses might be. And then I send them home with the online training program and the book and some DVDs. And and I get them going and uh, try to pair them up with a certified professional dog trainer. And you could always tell those people because they have the letters after their name. Um, and I try to pair them up with a certified professional dog trainer so that they could uh, continue to work in the right direction to, be, to get a service dog. Um, I, I want to add in one thing, though, and I think it's really important for your listeners to know this. You know, according to the American Disabilities Act, a service dog, okay, in order to have full public access under the law, a service dog has to be trained to perform a task for the person with a disability. So in the case of Terry's dog, where the dog just does something naturally by itself, that's not trained to do a task. And since the dog wasn't trained to do a task, that would not be a service dog under the definition of the law. So I think it's really important that people understand that that difference between the two. And, and the other thing is, you know, buying a puppy, I mean, sure, these puppies are really cute right now. I wish you could see them just kind of starting to walk and waddle around on their little wobbly legs. They're really cute, and it's this is a very emotional, as Dr. Adler said, this is a very emotional uh, disease that we're dealing with. And people are very vulnerable when they're emotional like that, and they want to do everything they can, and they say, oh, you know, these dogs sound like they're really great. Well, they are really great, and I could tell you stories all night about, you know, some of the remarkable things the dogs have done. And you look at these puppies and you say, oh, gosh, you know, I, yeah, I want to get this puppy and everything. But I caution people to stop and give some time before they make any kind of a major decision because this is a big thing that you're doing when you bring a dog into your life. Um, It's another life, and so you have to take care of that life too. It's not a device. Yes, it does perform a function like a device, but it's a living, breathing thing, and we have to respect that as well. And so it's really important that we we keep that in the back of our mind, too, and give ourselves some time so that we can view this a little more rationally before we make that final decision, do I want to bring a dog into my life to to do this work? Great advice. Thank you for being a part of the show tonight, Debbie Kay. Uh, Before we meet my final guest, Mama Rosemarie, let's take a listen to another song by the Isley Brothers that the Rolling Stone magazine recognized as one of the top 500 greatest songs of all time, courtesy of Sony Music. Diabetes Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedick, and thank you for tuning in and celebrating National Diabetes Awareness Month with us. Let's meet my final guest of the evening, Mama Rosemarie. Hi, Mom. Hi, Hi, Nick. 
exciting show tonight for uh, National Diabetes Awareness Month. You got to uh, meet the reporter, Mark D'Agostino, who interviewed me for People Magazine. And boy, did he change our lives because we got that, uh, that wonderful opportunity to travel through the nation with our program, Make Over Your Diabetes, for so many years. Yes. Well, thank you, Mark. I really enjoyed that. and I can't believe how many people we um, helped during that uh, time in our lives that we went all over. It was wonderful. And I just want to say that um, I thoroughly enjoyed your guests uh, tonight. They were so informative, and I hope a lot of people living with diabetes get a lot uh, get a lot from it. Um, I'm not living with diabetes, and I was just overwhelmed by that information. It was wonderful. So I'm going to give you my tip this month, and it relates to Marvin Isley's battle with diabetes and why it is so important to look after your feet every day. Foot problems can literally develop overnight for people with diabetes. So you need to check those feet every day for cuts, red areas, blisters or sores, swelling, pain, dry cracking skin, or change in the color or temperature. If you have trouble bending over, you can use a mirror to check the bottom of your feet. And don't forget to call your doctor or your podiatrist to schedule routine foot care, such as toenail trimming and treatment for warts or corns or calluses. Happy Thanksgiving to all the divas who are listening. Ciao for now. Great job, Mom. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. Let's welcome back Dr. Beverly Adler. She's got some closing remarks. She was our keynote speaker at Divavedic Victory Over Your Diabetes. We're wrapping up our five-part series on the emotional side of living with diabetes. Uh, Dr. Bev, what would you like to share? Yes, some words of wisdom, and this was how I closed out my uh, keynote address. Um, here's one of the closing thoughts. Choose to have a positive attitude. There's a saying, cannot live a positive life with a negative mind. If you default to a negative mindset, that will limit you. A bad attitude is like a flat tire. You don't get anywhere until you change it. Another thought was, Reminder, diabetes does not define who you are. It is just one aspect of you, like your eye color. Your illness does not define you. Your strength and courage does. Another, don't get bitter, get better. Don't see yourself as a victim. Appreciate what you do have, not what you don't. Make the rest of your life the best of your life. Another, Diabetes can be managed, not cured. Take charge of your diabetes and hold on. The difference between try and triumph is a little umph. Worrying about the future with diabetes doesn't take away tomorrow's troubles. It takes away today's peace. Be a warrior, not a worrier. And my last words of wisdom, diabetes won't quit. Neither can you. Thank you for having me on Thank you, Dr. Bob. Neither will we stop doing what we're doing. Thank you so much for being a part of the show this year. I want to thank all my guests, and thank you for listening. Please subscribe to our Divabetic e-newsletter at divabetic.org. Visit Divabetic's Facebook pages and watch my videos on Mr. Divabetic's YouTube channel. I'm going to add to Dr. Bob's list and say, hey, remember, every diva and every dude has an entourage. And I'm so glad to be part of yours. Let's get happy and stay healthy together. We're going to close the podcast with one of my favorite Isley Brothers songs, Put a Little Love in Your Heart, courtesy of Sony Music. Enjoy.
Jesus. Woo. 